0: But I was thinking, reflecting about this, uh, about what we are right now, and it seemed to me that, th- I won't say this is the high point of the series, but in some ways everything I've said for the last 18, 18 and 1820 lectures uh, is sort of preparation for Amos. And I may be a while on Amos. I certainly will be a while in the 8th century, if for no other reason that it includes Isaiah. Uh, it's gonna take us a while to get through the 8th century. In fact, I, 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 don't, I can't imagine we will do it in 2023. But, but right now, we're, we're starting Amos, and we certainly won't get that far in Amos. That's it's a very dense and significant text. As I pointed out last time, the biblical editor takes special care with the chronology of Amos. But well, look at that passage again. I think you have all the texts in front of you that you need for this lecture. Amos 1 1. This is this is an editorial introduction. Probably put together some time, probably, probably added sometime its present form, sometime during or after the after the exile. The words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa. Tekoa is south of Bethlehem, by the way. So it's a southern city. Among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, the king of Judah, and the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. Now, right ahead of that text, I've given you the dates for Uzziah of Judah and Jeroboam II of Samaria giving you those two dates those two sets of dates not everyone will agree on those dates but those are the those are the dates that I got from uh, from um, bright's history of israel a book of which I which along with William Foxwell Albright I cut my teeth on, on on those men of course they're way way, way gone now but uh, uh, bright, bright is a very fine study. Bright is never as bright as Albright.
1: <laughs>
0: Albra- Al- Albright was the greatest, you know, along with Sir Leonard Woolley of, who did the excavations at Ur. And uh, I once held in my hand Albright's copy of, of, of Woolley's book on Ur. I have actually held it in my hand from, from Albright's own library. He didn't wash the hand for six months. <laughs> now, from this one verse, we learn several things about Amos. First, we learn he was from Ju- Judah. He's a southerner, not a northerner. He's from the village of Tekoa, which is about 12 miles south of Jerusalem, perhaps another six or so miles south of Bethlehem. Now, the kingdom of Judah is, of course, ruled from Jerusalem. And you start to get this already at the very beginning, the opening verses of the prophecy of Amos. What animal do we associate with the tribe of Judah? The lion. The lion. The lion lion of Judah. The benedictions of of the patriarchs. Back at the, toward the end of Genesis. Uh, we get these these twelve symbols of the twelve tribes. Uh, all based, by the way, on all those symbols are based on Babylonian, Babylonian Zodiac. They're all, they're all zodiacal symbols. You know? Leo, a lion. You know? So Amos, the very next verse, Amos 1, 2. Okay. And he said, by the way, those of you who do readings in scripture upstairs, okay, it should stand, it should sound like the word of God. It should sound like the word of God, you know. It should not be mumbled. Uh, if you want to know how to do it, listen to Joseph Latender. Okay, that's how you do it. Thus says the Lord, you know. And, <laughs> You know, sound that way. In fact, the, when the scriptures are read upstairs, there should be complaints from local cemeteries. Because <laughs> the dead start to think, Is that, I think I'm hearing a trumpet here. <laughs> now here's the way the very next verse reads And he said, The Lord shall roar from Zion. He shall give forth his voice from Jerusalem. And the dwellings of the shepherds shall be cut off. And the choice fertile land will wither. And that's how he begins. He, he doesn't sort of build up to a crescendo. It's, it's a blast as soon as he starts. Second, we learn from that first verse that Amos prophesied not in the south, but in the north. That is to say, he crossed state lines. Or, as American legislation says, he crossed state lines to incite a riot. He walked right past Jerusalem to get up to Samaria. His prophecies are concerning Samaria. Now, we are reading these texts back through later history. And within 40 years of his saying this, Samaria would fall. The Northern Kingdom would disappear, overthrown by by the Assyrians Under Sargon II in 722. Third, we learn that the first prophecies of Amos were preached two years before the earthquake. I mentioned last week that the two weeks ago, archaeologists date the earthquake between 765 and 760. That pins the chronology of Amos down pretty closely. I mentioned last time, but we didn't 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 go through it because it was at very end of the class. It was at very end of the class, so I didn't didn't have time to elaborate on it. It's interesting to observe that between these two dates, there was a solar eclipse in the Levant. It occurred on June fifteenth, seven sixty three. We know the date of every single solar eclipse okay, since there's been a sun. Okay. That is to say, we know of every solar eclipse since Wednesday of the day of creation. <laughs> and we and we and we also the nate know the date of every single solar eclipse until the parousia. Augustine comments on that in the in, in the City of God. Because they already they already knew it back then. Now this June 15th is an interesting day. This is, this is the date in which Orthodox Christians celebrate the feast of the prophet Amos. Is that significant? No, I don't think so. I think it's just a coincidence. I think it's just a coincidence. Some commentators on the book have suggested that Amos himself may have prophesied that solar eclipse. In chapter, I don't, I don't think I put this text down, but you had it last week, or last time. Chapter eight, verse nine: "It shall come to pass in that day," it says the Lord God, "that I will make the sun go down at noon, and I will darken the earth in broad daylight." So, some historians of the text think he may have been prophesying a solar eclipse, and that when it happened, people said, oh, he really is a prophet. Sort of like the, those early scenes of uh, Bing Crosby's movie, uh, A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court, where he, he predicts a solar eclipse because he read it and, he read it you have you seen that movie? Oh, see that movie. Uh, I read the book. Well, of course, yes. Honestly, the book is great, but uh, but the uh, the, uh, the the short story is great. The uh, the uh, movie's better because you get you get singing and that kind of thing, you know. And... Now, what's to be said of that? I think it's a little bit of a stretch, frankly. I think it's a bit of a stretch. I mean it's a bit of a stretch for purposes of dating these prophecies. It's just possible that Amos used the expression of an eclipse as an image for what is to come. But it's not proper to Amos. You know, you found exactly the same reference in Jeremiah fifteen nine, Micah three six. In other words, he wasn't being terribly r- original by the solar eclipse. That's the way prophets speak. Just considered as prophecy, it's amply fulfilled as as Susan pointed out last class. It's amply fulfilled in the events of Good Friday. And I think that is ultimately the meaning of it. Uh, it's, it's, I'm, 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 I'm not sure we can use that for purposes of dating. Purposes of dating. Um, now, the oracles of Amos, which he likens to the roaring of a lion, come from the south, just over the border from the northern shrine at Bethel. Now, last class, I wasn't exactly proud of you guys, as, as though I have a right to be. Uh, I asked, "What were the two shrines where the, where the golden calves were set up in, in the northern kingdom?" And I got a lot of blank spares, stares from on a point that anybody who'd been in Sunday school up age twelve should know. Okay. And a catechumen got it right: <laughs> okay. Dad and Bethel. Okay. Dan and Bethel. Jeroboam before first sets up shrines at Dan and Bethel. Bethel is just on the other side from Judah. It puts golden calves in both places. The Lord will roar from Zion, it says, and will give forth his voice from Jerusalem. Now Amos, as we shall see, is very critical of the religious shrines of the northern kingdom but especially the one closest to him the shrine at Bethel now that was very very early a place of pilgrimage because remember that's that's the house of god and the gate of heaven that's the place where the angels of god go up and down on these ladders that's where jacob had his his had his famous vision and he stab, he, and he puts up the this first stone you know, and anoints the stone, remember? Uh, all that great imagery that starts appearing in the fathers of the church about this anointed stone. <clears throat> He's very critical of the shrine at Bethel. In 922, at the time of the schism, Jeroboam first took that ancient shrine and turned it into a place, of, it was already a place of pilgrimage, he turned it into the place where you actually went, preferred place where you kept all your, your feast days, your high feast days, and so forth. He put it right there on the border, near the border with Judah, because he did not want him coming down to Jerusalem. And of course, Bethel was a shrine of Israel long before they ever dreamed of a capital of Jerusalem. Now the threatening roar of Amos is directed to the hypocrites who worship at that shrine. One of the things we'll notice in the book of Amos is the objects of his criticism are all religious people. They're all religious people. But they worship the wrong God, which is why they are unjust, cruel, selfish, materialistic. You have the text there, Amos three, verse three. You have that text with right you. Will the lion roar in the forest if he has no prey? Roar. You know? um, the Hebrew word that's closest to it is arur, which is cursed. Cursed cursed is the land. No, aurora Adama, cursed is the, is the soil. For your sake, remember that cursed. Yeah. For the Lord God does nothing without revealing His secret to the prophet, the prophets that serve Him. A lion has roared, who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken, who will not prophesy? Hear and testify against the house of the Lord, says the Lord God, the God of hosts. In the day I punish Israel for their transgressions, I will also visit the altars of Bethel, and the horns of the altar will be cut off and fall to the ground. He's condemning this ancient shrine, which is now a center of idolatry. Corruptio optimi pessima. The corruption of the best is the worst. Okay. Or lilies that fester smell fall worse than weeds. I just made that up myself, me and Shakespeare. <laughs> Bethel was one of the shrines to which people made pilgrimage. There's also a shrine in Gilgal, by the way the shrine at Gilgal. Gilgal was the first place the Israelites encamped after the crossing of the Jordan, you recall from the book of Joshua, where I believe the word appears 39 times. Somewhat after Amos, the prophet Hosea will have shocking things to say about Gilgal. Did I give you the text from Hosea 9.15? I might not have. No. Well, I'll just read it for you. This is, this is Hosea 9.15. The Lord says, All their wickedness began at Gilgal. That's, right, that's, that's the place where they first camped after they got into the Holy Land. All their wickedness began there. There I began to hate them. This is God talking about the, the chosen people. There I began to hate them. I will drive them from my land because of their evil deeds. I will love them no more, because all their all their leaders are rebels. We'll take that text in detail when we get to Hosea, but it'll be a little while we'll get to Hosea. Now I've arranged these verses in order to draw attention to their acrostic form. You see, the, you see these verses beginning at Amos five four. See how I've got them arranged, and so you can follow you can follow the the poetic structure of, of the of, of the uh, acrostic of the acrostic structure. They're mentioned along with Beersheba. No, notice, notice how, in fact, the entire chapter is arranged in acrostic form, but I, I didn't I didn't want to work all that out for you. That, we could, spend, we could spend a lot of time on the structure of Hebrew poetry. But I, I, that's not, that can't be a priority, I think. But here, just notice here, this simple acrostic form. Thus says the Lord God to the house of Israel. A. Seek me and live. B. Seek not Bethel. C. Enter not into Gilgal. D. Nor pass over to Beersheba. C. For Gilgal shall surely go into captivity. B, and Bethel will come to nothing. A. Seek the Lord and live. Follow that. Seek the Lord, seek the Lord, first and last. Second, second, Bethel, second to last, Bethel. Third, Gilgal, third to last, Gilgal, second place, bersheba By the way, we have no information about a shrine in bersheba I researched that as carefully as I could. I could find no information on this at all. Yes, Paul. You said it's a necrostic. Does, does the beginning of the lines spell out a word in the original language, or is it just a no, poetic ABC? In, word it, the, the, no, they actually, you know, they don't. Okay. They don't spell out a word. The. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. I'm, I, I wrote. I wrote down. <laughs> It's my fault. a a Chiasm. Yes, a chiasm. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. The genius erred. (laughs) (laughs) Would you rather have erring genius or faultless mediocrity? (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs) Chiasm. I'm sorry. It's my my fault. My fault. Thank you so much for pointing that out, Paul. A chiasm, yeah. And I I do know the difference, but... uh, I must have been awfully weary when I wrote that down. We have no information about a shrine in Besheba This reference to it is not clear. What is clear is a prophecy of downfall and exile in connection with these shrines, especially Bethel. Amos continues, "Lest he break out like fire in the house of Joseph and devour it, with no one to extinguish it in Bethel." you who turned justice to wormwood and lay righteousness to rest in the earth. Amos is not prophesying about the downfall of Bethel. He is doing it at Bethel. He's not doing it safely someplace else. He's at Bethel, roaring like a lion in this place where all these religious people are gathered for worship and have been planning their pilgrimage for the past year, have taken off from work so they can make a pilgrimage. And this, this prophet from someplace else shows up and says, you guys are finished. And he roars this at them. This is very clear in his vision of the plumb line. There are a bunch of images, visions that Amos has, but, and we may take all of them. But let's start, let's start with this vision of the plumb line. Everybody know what a plumb line is. If you don't, just say so, I, because there'll be somebody like Daniel who'll be able to tell you what a plumb line is. <laughs> okay. If something is plumb, <laughs> it means it's straight down. You, know? you put up a wall, particularly you want it. You want it plumb so the wall won't mm-hmm. go this way or that straight down. Mm-hmm. It's an image of something that's perfectly in line. Normally normally we don't use plumb lines. Oh, we, oh I think a carpenter does, or, or a, but in my home I would not use a plumb line because I've got that contraption actually within within my level. Those little, those little bubbles, it's you, very easy just I tell the things I'm trading it when the bubble sits there. Uh, by the way, I've I've been down on a on a the, on a nuclear submarine. I've been down on a nuclear submarine where you have the highest technology in the world. Okay. <laughs> and how do they tell whether they're level? There's a bubble <laughs> <laughs> I mean, technology that goes back 3,000 years is being used in the submarine to see if <laughs> the plumb line signifies what is inexorable in the judgment of God. No matter how a plumb line may waver in the wind, it will always return to the same direction. Now, this is the judgment of God; it is set. It's heading toward that line. It's unwavering. Chapter 7, verse 7. Behold, the Lord stood upon the wall with a plumb line. With a plumb line. In Hebrew, anach, anach. A plumb line in his hand. And the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a plumb line. Then the Lord said, Behold, I am setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will not pass by them anymore. The high places of Isaac shall be desolate, and the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste. And I will rise with the sword against the house of Jeroboam. Now he's saying right there, he's denouncing the king, denouncing the government, and he's denouncing the shrine. Now eventually we got to find out, what is he so worked up about? What's he so worked up about? Hmm? He will spell it out for us. One of the lectures I'm going to have, I think I'm going to title entitled The Ivory Beds, because the excavations that were made there and, and the references to the ivory beds that appear in the prophecies. Now, if we put this prophecy in the late 760s, this is exactly 40 years, a generation, a generation, before the downfall of the northern kingdom, Samaria, in seven twenty-two, in the mind of Amos, this fate has already been determined. It is inexorable; it can't be stopped. It is going to happen. Remember later on, following century, when they discover the Deuteronomy scroll, they take it to prophetess Huldah. She says it's going to happen. There's absolutely nothing you can do to stop it now. It's gone too far. It's going to happen. Mm-hmm. In the mind of Amos, this, this has been determined. Like a plumb line, it is inevitable. It will happen with a certainty that's almost scientific. Now, the priest at Bethel, a man by the name of Amaziah, he gets mildly upset with this whole scene. He's alarmed. I think if somebody came, showed up at the back of our church some Sunday and started denouncing us here as a bunch of hypocrites and and foretelling the downfall of this parish. I think I think Father Henry might be a little bit upset. That happened to me once in my last church. I wasn't expecting that (laughs) very nice then Amaziah the priest of Bethel sent to Jeroboam king of Israel saying Amos has conspired against you in the midst of the house of Israel Conspiracy. Conspiracy. That's, that's, that's always the accusation of a government, government that's in serious trouble. They <laughs> accuse their opponents of conspiracy. The land is not able to bear all his words. I mean, the whole place is shaking. It has roaring like a lion. For thus Amos has said, Jeroboam will die by the sword. And Israel shall surely be kept led away to captive, uh, captive from their own land. Now this is an explicit prophecy of the downfall of the northern kingdom. About forty years later, it was the fulfillment of that prophecy that warranted the reputation and authority of Amos as a prophet. That's why they preserved his words. He predicted something, and it happened. If somebody predicts something and it doesn't happen, what's supposed to be supposed to do to them? Stone them to death. Okay. I used to remind back we used to have prophecies delivered at our parish down in Oklahoma City. People get up and give a prophecy of it. I don't think I have to throw the first stone, but still. The prophecy was recorded so that it could be checked. The priest also reprimands Amos, telling him to head back south where he came from. Amos suffers the usual accusation leveled by insecure governments conspiracy. Then Amaziah said to Amos, Go, you seer, flee to the land of Judah. There eat bread and prophesy there, but never again prophesy at Bethel, for it is the king's sanctuary. It is the royal house. Now, by way of response, the prophet tells of the rural circumstances and agricultural conditions of his calling, adding a few choice words about what the accusing priest might expect in the near future. Then Amos answered and said to Amaziah, no prophet am I, nor son of a prophet, but I am a breeder of sheep and a caretaker of the sycamore. Then the Lord took me as I followed the flock. And the Lord said to me, go prophesy to my people Israel. Now this is Amos's account of himself. What do I know? I'm just a farmer. I take care of sheep, cultivate trees. I mean, what do I know? You know? He's careful to identify himself as a representative of the farming community. The place where the livestock is raised. Okay. Yes, Joseph. Uh, my memory is faulty. But were there not like semi-formal prophetic groups uh, within Israel or within Judah? We, we 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 do know. We do know that there are people called the sons of the prophet, uh, in in in, uh, in the northern kingdom, associated with Elijah, for example. Uh, what is the meaning of this son of a prophet? Let me tell you that I don't believe that that's the case here. Um, I remember this text came up in a discussion group when, back when I was, a, I was canon, thank you darling, of mm-hmm. uh, the cathedral in Oklahoma City. I, I would go up to Stillwater, uh, place where Oklahoma State University was. Up to Stillwater, we had an an Old Testament fellowship that met there twice a year. Uh, And we actually took this text from one of them. And uh, one of the Old Testament professors from one of the local campuses there, it may have been the university itself, gave that interpretation, the Sons of Proverbs, it was a guild, and so forth. And I said, frankly, I don't think so. I don't think so. I think it's simply a repetition. What is man that thou art mindful of him? Or the son of man that thou care for him? It's just a way of saying the same thing. Mahenosh ben adam kitiv Kadenu. Henosh Adam. Mahenosh What is man? kitiv And I made that point to him. And then they went on the discussion. And after the fellow got finished giving his paper, one of the, one of the, one of the several rabbis, because the rabbis always met by us, one of the rabbis said, one of you just quoted Psalm 8 <laughs> uh, and made the point that, this, that the son of the prophet is the same thing as the prophet. He says that is correct. And then he gave a whole bunch of instances of that of that kind of usage a, a carpenter or a son of a carpenter or whatever just which, so I, I that's what I think that's what I think that is I would not put it see it anywhere more than them I was so glad to have he didn't even he did not even correct my pronunciation of the Hebrew <laughs> thank, thank you Joseph I I had uh, I had even neglected to, to, to mention that possibility. So Amos is a shepherd and an arborist. The sycamore, by the way, has a fruit resembling a fig. Amos is a man of the land. Now, how likely is it that somebody who just works a farm 10 sheep, is going to know all that Amos knows. I think they may be getting ready to come down. What I'll be saying two weeks from now is this. The other parts of the book demonstrate convincingly that Amos is exaggerating by talking about how uncultured he is, how he doesn't know anything, he's just a simple farmer or sheep. How is it that he knows everything that's going on in the world? In fact, an international voice, you know, for three three transgressions or for four of Damascus, (coughs) of Phoenicia, of Edom, of Tyre, of the Moabites, he knows everything that's happening. The book is the book is full of historical allusions, lots of imagery, historical facts. It is absolutely stocked of erudition. This man is clearly a scholar. Um, but he's what, what he wants to stress, though, is 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 tied to the land. It's tied to the land. Okay. This the pr- prophetic movement. It's going to be could be entitled, the plantation strikes back. <laughs> it's going to be it's going to be the voice, the voice of the rural people. By and large, right? Obviously, exceptions like like I say. saying, yeah. be the voice of the rural people, striking back to the city dwellers. That's going to be a big feature of the thing, kind of what you have in Greece, more or less simultaneously, in something like Hesiod, where with the Greek farming community will now stand up to Athens and into the into the city states. Uh, however, we, we've got young people already coming down, and I don't want the. You know, yes, Joseph. I just have to add your description of Amos resembles uh, very much a certain uh, Kentucky essayist, poet, and novelist. It, actually, I I I've thought about it, that. It, you know about, about a lot mm-hmm. uh, shortly after I came here i had i had had some hope of getting him involved uh, here. Uh, I called him in fact I called him I called his home phone I had a long talk with him and but he 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 wasn't he wasn't doing business speaking mm-hmm. uh, he wasn't doing it so but uh, yeah yeah thank you for. for mm-hmm. Yeah, he should. Uh, somebody else, somebody else who's clearly that way. You, you sometimes see him on uh, see him on Fox News. His is uh, his name uh, David Victor Davis Hanson. Victor Davis Hanson. Yes. Victor Davis Hanson. I mean, he he's a, he's a wine grower. Uh, he he's, he stresses the form. In fact, he wrote a book called *The Other Greeks*, which is about the Greek agricultural community. But he's, a, he's an expert on warfare and weapons and things of this sort. But he starts, it's, 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 it's the land. And he says that it's, it's the land, talking back, yeah. Yes, Chris. Are we, who are we speaking of? Which Kentuckian? Wendell Berry. Wendell Berry, oh. Wendell Berry. yeah, Wendell Berry. Wendell, Wendell has gotten himself into some hot water the last few years because of his stand on sexual ethics. Uh, But uh, I am disposed to cut him some slack, if for no other reason that he's an old man. And I want want all you guys to cut old men some slack. (laughs) Okay. Glory to the Father, through the Son, in the Holy Spirit, now and ever, the God who is, who was, and is to come at the end of time. Amen.